Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. A guy named Private Leroy Imes tells a story of how they were on a routine patrol during the Korean War when all of a sudden their Humvees started taking some massive ar artillery uh, assaults. They had to get out, jump into a bunker, and as they got there, the sergeant looked at them and said, Private Imes, where's your helmet? I forgot it. I left it in the, I left it in the Humvee. He says, well, where's your belt that carries your weapons? He said, I forgot that too. I left it in the Humvee. He says, where are your boots? <laughs> well, I had taken them off while I was getting comfy in the Humvee. And he later records, I was dressed for a game of volleyball, not for war. And that makes me think of how in the Christian life, some of us are dressed for a game of volleyball, but I don't know that we're ready for war, and I don't know if we recognize this or not, and we're going to see it in Scripture this morning, but when you woke up, did you know that you actually engaged in a battle? Especially if you're a believer and you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment you trusted Him, you engaged in a real battle with a real enemy. And we have got some real battles raging against us. Uh, the really neat thing is we don't have to panic. In fact, we're going to talk about this this morning, but as believers in the Lord Jesus, we're fighting from victory, not for it. So it's not a war that we're wondering if God is going to win, and you've probably seen like in comics this little battle going on between God and the devil, and we're just hoping that God wins. But if we sit down and we study what Scripture actually tells us, God has already won the war. We're still engaged in battle. We see battles going on around us, but we're going to have a blast with this. We're only about five weeks away from studying through the book of Revelation. I'm going to spoil it for you. I'm going to tell you what Revelation tells us. God wins. Okay, so I just ruined the whole book of Revelation, but you're going to find out that God wins. In the meantime, you and I are engaged in these battles. So we know who wins the war, but what about the battle that you and I are engaged in? We're, we're fighting every single day. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at three things together when we engage in this battle. And it's three things that we're going to take a look at that are going to round out the book of Ephesians for us, which, believe it or not, we're on the last message of Ephesians. We start Advent next week, which I'm super excited about as well. But for this morning, we're going to take a look at who's our enemy. It's good to know who the enemy is and, and then learn his game plan. We're going to take a look at where our energy comes from. What is it that energizes us in this battle? If our energy is coming from ourselves, we're going to fall short every single time. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at what equipment God has given us for this battle. What equipment should you and I uh, be wearing? So if you would, would you grab your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 6. We're finishing out the book of Ephesians this week. Uh, Pastor Steve Stucker did a great job last week of taking us through the rest of Ephesians 5 and then into Ephesians 6. Uh, I had been wanting to give you guys another voice and another face for a while, so uh, Steve and I were taking a look at when we could get him to preach, and I figure, hey, wives submit to your husbands, kids submit to your parents, slaves submit to your master. Steve, you can have that one. So <laughs> I didn't do it on purpose, it's just the way it ended up, but... If you would, take your Bibles, and we're going to finish out Ephesians 6, 10 through 24 this week. And if you would, would you join me in just standing as we honor the Lord? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. Paul says, Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be, be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may also know how I am, how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. You can have a seat. Thanks, King. So like I said at the beginning, we're going to take a look at three things. Who is our enemy in this fight? If you have your uh, sermon notes handy, which is in your bulletin that you got when you walked through the door, uh, and you can take a look at what the title of our sermon is this morning. It's the fight of our lives. We are in the fight of our lives. We are engaged in quite the cosmic battle. And in doing so, in getting engaged in this battle, we need to know the enemy. Do we know how he operates? Do we know how he works? By the time this morning is over, you're going to know exactly who your enemy is and you're going to know how he operates. And then you're going, to be know, you're going to know what tools you're going to need to use in order to defeat this enemy. So let's start with our enemy. Who is he? Well, his name is the devil. You may be going, great, tell me something I don't know this morning. Well, there's a reason why he's given that name. The word devil literally means slanderer or accuser. Satan loves to slander God, he loves to slander God's people, and he loves to accuse God and accuse his people. He's doing it all the time. As of right now, to be one who believes in the exclusivity of Jesus in the gospel, it's causing us to come under more and more attack as time goes by. That is the world that we live in. In fact, it has become dangerous to be a believer in Jesus just about everywhere in the world except for North America, and now it's becoming more dangerous here. This is going to sound really weird, but I'm actually counting that as a good thing. If you take a look at Scripture, it's whenever the church came under attack that all of a sudden the gospel began to spread like wildfire. All of a sudden, believers had to wake up from their sleep and go, wow, we better get engaged or some bad things are going to happen. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details, 
But if you simply look at how somebody like Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany rose into power, it has a large part to do with the fact that Christians didn't step up and preach the gospel of truth into that society. I'm going to dive into just a little bit of history, but if you go back and you study Germany, it was an extremely Christianized nation. They knew the gospel there. And yet Hitler, with about 14 people in his back pocket, were able to raise up an entire nation that was about as diabolical as one could be. How did they get there? It was believers burying their heads in the sand and saying, you know what, as long as it doesn't affect us, let us just do what we're doing in our churches and we'll just keep operating in the same way. Listen, gang, as believers in Jesus, we are called to step out in faith, get engaged in the battle, get engaged in the war. Your neighbors need Christ, your coworkers need Christ, your politicians need Christ, and no one's going to bring it to them unless the church does it. Remember, the church is plan A and there is no plan B. So Satan is beginning to work. He's accusing God's people. He's accusing God himself. He's accusing God's word of being exclusive, of being bigoted, of being intolerant. If you all know who James Dobson is, his son wrote a great little book. His son, Ryan Dobson, wrote a book called Be Intolerant Because Some Things Are Just Stupid. And it's true. And if you read his book, he did a really good job of unpacking how the idea of tolerating all things is just stupid and it's wrecking us. So therefore, let's be ready to engage in that battle and be called intolerant and at times be called bigoted even though you're not. Well, now we know who the enemy is. He's the devil. Let's talk about his nature. There's two things we want to take a look at this morning. The first is this. His nature is shrewd. If you go back to verse 11... What did Paul tell us? Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There's a couple of things to note there. The word stand in the Greek is what we call an aorist infinitive. Aorist means in the past. We needed to be able to stand in the past, but infinitive means it goes on in the future. In other words, the battle never stops. It just keeps going. The enemy is just going to keep attacking. He's going to continue to bombard you all as young people. He's going to bombard you all as older people. He's going to continue to attack your faith. He's going to do everything he can to tear down the word of God, to get you to believe it's not true. And we'll unpack that just a little bit more in a moment. James chapter 1 verse 14 talks about the lures of the devil. The traps and the lures of the devil. Or in other words, the way he lures us in and entices us. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In fact, I'm going to ask you, keep your finger in Ephesians 6, but would you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 with me? We're going to take a look at how the enemy works. And Satan does not want you to know how he works. But we're going to take a look at how he operates. It's the same today as it was during the time of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He works in the exact same way. So, Like I said, keep your finger in Ephesians 6, but we're going to camp out on Genesis chapter 3 for just a little bit, and we're going to take a look at how shrewd our enemy can be. So beginning in verses 1 through 3, you all know the story. God speaks all of creation into existence, then he forms and he fashions Adam from the dust of the ground, then he forms Eve from his side, from his rib, and then the enemy comes on the scene. Now, God has created all of this 
beautiful universe for Adam and Eve to enjoy. And there's no fighting, there's no getting sick, there's no disease, there's no death. But then the devil shows up and goes, yeah, but there's got to be something better than perfection. So let's go for it. And look at how he works. In verses 1 through 3, he says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Here's the first thing Satan does. He sows seeds of doubt. Did you see what he said? Did you see how he got her to doubt? Did God really say? Is that what he actually said? I hear people do this with the Bible all the time. Yeah, I know God's Word says this, but is that what God really meant? Here's the crazy thing. God's Word is described as revelation. Do you know what revelation means? We're going to study the book of Revelation. Do you all know what revelation means? It means to unveil or take the cover off. I want you to see the truth. God's not trying to hide His Word from you. Did you know you don't have to be some scholar? You don't have to be a pastor. You don't ever have to go to a priest in order to understand God's Word. He wrote it so that each one of us could pick it up, read it, grow in it, become more like Christ from it, and understand it. One of the things that I'm really excited about as your pastor is not just to tell you what the Word of God says, but to teach you how to read it and study it. Now, God gave us teachers for a reason. There are certain things that hopefully I will help you uh, understand and some things that will be illuminated and brought to light. But for the most part, you don't need me. You don't need another pastor. You can actually pick up the Word of God and study it. Although Satan would love to get you to believe that you shouldn't pick up your Bible because you'll never be able to understand it. And then if you do read it and you do understand it, well, God didn't really mean that, did he? God didn't really mean marriage between just one man and one woman. That's archaic and barbaric. God didn't really mean that men should step up and be leaders in their households, did he? I mean, that's old school. God didn't really mean that if he made you a boy, he made you a boy, or if he made you a girl, he made you... He didn't really mean that, did he? God didn't really mean that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I mean, that's just so exclusivistic. But here's the thing, and we're going to take a look at this in a little bit when we take a look at the weapons of, of uh, God's armor and what he gave us. Truth, by definition is always exclusive. In fact, the very definition of truth is that which conforms to reality, which is extremely exclusive. Satan would love to get you to doubt that. Well, here's the second thing he does. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So he went from getting her to doubt to now flat out deceiving her. You're not going to die. Don't worry about it. Satan will water the seeds of doubt with deceit. He will lie to you and get you to believe or try to get you to believe that your sin is really no big deal. It's not going to kill you. Sin is killing us. It's wrecking families. It's wrecking churches. It's wrecking communities. It's wrecking countries. 
Sin is absolutely killing us. And right now, we live in a society that calls right wrong and wrong right. It's calling sin everything other than what it is. Think about how we, how we have disguised sin and what we call it now. In fact, we don't even call sin sin anymore. What do we call it? It was a mistake. It's not my fault. I'm just a product of my environment. Dad didn't tell me he was proud of me. Mom didn't hug me enough. It's everybody else's fault. But we don't want to call it what it is. Sin is absolutely wrecking us. Well, Satan then moves on. Look at verse 5. He said, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now we go from Satan getting us to doubt to him beginning to deceive us to now he's deluding us. It's absolute delusion. See, Satan goes from not only will sin not kill you, sin is actually going to make you just like God. That's why God doesn't want you to have freedom of choice. Because he knows that once you have that choice, you could become just like him. In fact, we are running around in a society that thinks that they can become little gods. Our kids are being told we don't need God anymore. We can make life in a test tube. Fantastic. You think you can, but here's the deal. Start with your own DNA. Start with your own dust. You don't get to borrow from God to try to make life in a test tube. What if you had to make everything from absolutely nothing? I'm being facetious, but good luck with that. When is the last time you saw anything come from nothing, let alone everything come from nothing? By the way, I'm super excited to dive into this stuff. We're going to start doing this on Wednesday nights starting January 11th. We're going to gather together for something called the unshakable truth, and we are going to unpack why there is no reason for us as believers to be deluded into believing that we can become our own gods. We have to have an infinite God who is outside of all finite things in order to bring finite things into existence. You're going to learn big fancy words and leave feeling really smart when we study things like the cosmological argument and the teleological argument and the ontological argument and the epistemological I say that word five times fast, epistemological argument, all kinds of fun stuff. We're going to have a blast with it together. I can't wait. And you're going to walk out of here with a faith that is bolstered in knowing that there is an absolute God who has an absolute truth in his word, and I can know who he is. I can know that he's real. I can know that his word is true. And we don't have to be deluded into believing that we can live without him. Did you know that you can't live a single second without God allowing you to? You didn't get to wake up this morning and take another breath unless God allowed you to. And here's the good news. If God says this is it, this is your last breath, we also know who holds our eternal life in his hands. And we got nothing to worry about. That's something to be excited about. I don't have to worry about anything that mankind does to me. Not a thing. I can walk out these doors not having to worry if somebody drives down the road and wants to take me out because of my love for Jesus don't have to have a thing to worry about. I bring that up because the man that wrote the letter of Ephesians is sitting in prison, and he's eventually going to be killed for his faith. He wasn't deluded into believing that he could control his life, that he was the master of his own destiny. Did you know that none of us are the masters of our own destiny? The Lord is completely in control of that. Okay, I digress. Let's move on. Verses 7 and 8. Listen to what happens. So it tells us in verses, uh, actually let me go to verse 6. 
It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so she bought to the lie, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Satan moves from getting us to doubt, to deceiving us, to deluding us, and then once he's done all that, he'll just sit back and watch the disobedience. Let's just watch mankind disobey God. And then let's see what happens. Listen, I want to encourage you. I I didn't come to Christ until I was 21. I didn't really trust the Lord until the day after my 21st birthday. Prior to that, I lived life just partying it up. Who cares about who you hurt? Who cares about whether or not I'm destroying myself? Whether or not I might wreck my family or my future family? Who cares? And Satan surely doesn't. He sits back and watches us disobey. And he loves the results. Listen, sin will wreck you every single time. In fact, Jesus told us in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to do what? Kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. By the way, there's all kinds of joy wrapped up in that. You may be thinking, man, if I just live a life that's just righteous and pious all the time, life's going to be boring. Listen, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. We should be the biggest party people on the planet because we have more to rejoice over than anybody else. Because no matter what happens to us, I know where I'm going. I'm going to go enjoy forever with the Lord. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, eternal pleasures are where? At God's right hand. That's the only place where you will find eternal pleasure. You'll find temporary happiness in drugs. You'll find temporary happiness in illicit sex. I mean, we've been really honest with our teenage girls. We don't lie to them. Sex is super tempting. Sex feels good at the moment. Drugs feel good at the moment. Lying about ourselves feels good at the moment. But the consequences are never worth it. So do me a favor. Don't lie to yourselves. Don't lie to your kids. Sin always feels good at the outset. Don't tell them that it doesn't because if they go off and experiment, well, mom and dad have been lying to me. It does. It feels good at the moment. The problem is, what are the repercussions? See, we can have a blast together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and I don't need alcohol or drugs to do it. I don't need illicit sex to do it. I can have a blast with fellow believers and with unbelievers and still honor and glorify the Lord and have no regrets when I wake up the next day. Well, let's finish with the last thing Satan does. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Satan moves from getting us to doubt, to deceiving us, to deluding us, to watching us disobey, which reaps the fruit of what? Death. Do you know that Adam and Eve just died? You may be reading this going, wait a minute, they're still walking around, they're not dead. What did they do when they heard God coming? They tried to hide from, can you imagine playing hide and go seek with God Almighty? You're going to lose every single time, and yet they hide. They did something else. They sewed fig leaves together. There are multiple interesting things about this passage First of all, they try to hide from God. That's death. 
Death in the Bible means separation, not a ceasing to exist. They are now separated from God and trying to hide from Him. The other interesting thing is of all the leaves that they used to cover their most intimate parts, they used fig leaves. How many of you all are familiar with fig trees at all? Has anybody ever touched a fig leaf? What's it like? It's like a rose bush, super pointy. Of all the leaves, they just happened to grab a fig leaf. I'm thinking, you know, Haynes her way would be much better than a fig leaf. But yet that's the first thing that they're trying to attach to themselves. And so now they're trying to cover up their sin and their shame. By the way, you know what else you just saw for the very first time besides death? Religion. Man and woman just tried to atone for their own sin. You know what the main difference is between being a follower of Jesus and every religion in the world? And it doesn't matter if you're talking about Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Roman Catholicism, Buddhism, Hinduism, you name the ism. The only difference between being a follower of Jesus and all and every other false religion, you know what the difference is? One, God has atoned for our sin through his own doing by doing something that you and I could never do. That's being a follower of Jesus. Every other religion in the world tries to atone for their own sin in some way, shape, or form and will fall short every single time. Adam and Eve tried to atone for their own sin. Later on in this passage, you will see that God actually gave them an opportunity to confess what they had done and to be forgiven. And instead, what do they do if you know the rest of the passage? What does Adam do? It's the woman's fault. And then what does the woman say? Well, it's the serpent's fault. And ultimately, do you know who they're blaming? God Almighty. God made the woman and God made the serpent, so God, it's actually your fault. And we have become professionals at doing that. All right, well, there's your enemy. You know who he is. You know how he works. So now that you know who he is and now that you know how he works, it's time to take a look at one more thing about our enemy and then develop a game plan for how he's going to be defeated. Here's the third thing that we'll see this morning. Our enemy's nature is spiritual. Again, if you got your Bibles and you go back to Ephesians chapter 6, take a look at something and please don't miss this. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, it's not people that we're fighting against, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. I'll be honest with you, I am absolutely appalled at the direction that some of our politicians have been willing to take our country and the road that they have been willing to go down. The things that people in our society have been willing to call right, the words that they have used to disguise evil and disguise sin makes me sick but I have to be careful at getting too mad at people and forgetting that not only are they not the enemy, but they're victims of the enemy. They have bought the lie, and they themselves need to be prayed for big time and need to hear the gospel. So we have to remember that our enemy's nature is not only shrewd, but it's spiritual, and he is working behind the scenes all the time. So here comes the big question. How do we fight the enemy? What have we been given to fight the enemy, and this is where our energy comes in. Where does our energy come from? 
Verses, going back to verses 10 and 11, listen to this. Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord. Listen to what he said closely. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. If we fight in our own power, we will lose every single time. We have an enemy with demonic forces that have been studying mankind for eons. And they know how to beat us up. Do any of you all, in all honesty, have that one sin or maybe a couple that just doesn't seem to let go? Have any of you all gone through a week where you look back on the week and go, man, I did it again. I blew it again in the same area. It is so frustrating. It's because the enemy knows exactly where to attack. And if we try to fight that on our own, we're going to lose every single time. So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Draw your strength from God's might. Don't draw it from our own. Now, it sounds a little bit redundant on the surface. Why does he say be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might? Well, might, the definition of that word literally means force, strength, ability. But then when he uses the word strength, he's referring to God's dominion, His sovereign ability to use His might and to know exactly when to use it. Let me give you an example of what it means to trust in the Lord's might and not our own. I can't fly. If I had a superpower, that would be my power. I want to fly. There's something about just being able to soar into the air. However, when I get into an airplane or a jet, I can soar at 550 miles per hour at 35,000 feet in the air because of the power of that jet. I can't run 70 miles an hour. But if I get in my car and I yield to its power, I can. Okay, maybe not my car because it's a Hyundai Elantra, but maybe your car. And I can go 70 miles an hour. Listen to what the Bible says about trusting in the Lord's strength and not our own. Back in Ephesians chapter 3, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Mark chapter 11, verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. John chapter 14, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. Now let me make sure that we're clear on these verses. That doesn't mean if you suddenly pray for like a 2023 BMW with spinner rims and large bass speakers, it's going to suddenly fall out of the sky. Remember what Jesus said, anything that you ask for in my name. What does it mean to ask for something in someone's name? It means to ask for something that is within their character or something that they would desire. So what is it that is within Jesus' character or something that he would desire that he would ask us to pray for that might be beyond ourselves? Well, first of all, the salvation of loved ones or co-workers, or neighbors. Did you know that you and I can't bring anybody to faith in Christ? We could give the most eloquent explanation of the gospel, and yet they might still stick their nose in the air and walk away. Or we might stumble through the gospel and go, man, I hope they understood anything I just said, and you watch, the Lord draws them to himself. The key here is to remember that we do this in Jesus' name, within 
his character. All right, so we know who our enemy is. Who is it? It's the devil. What does his name mean? It means slanderer or accuser. How does he work? Well, he gets us to doubt. He deceives us. He deludes us. He gets us to disobey. And then he watches death happen. So how do we fight that enemy? In the strength of the Lord. Well, what equipment has he given us? Man, new covenant. I told you before, I'll say it again. You ask great questions. So here we go. What is the equipment we've been given? Let's cruise through these. Starting in verse 14, what is the first thing that Paul says to put on? What's the very first thing we put on? The belt of truth. Now, keep in mind that as Paul is speaking to the Ephesian believers, they would have been looking at Roman soldiers all over the place. So they knew exactly what he was talking about when he talked about the belt. The belt wasn't this wimpy little thing that I have on my waist right now. It was huge. It covered most of their midsection. It stabilized the body. It stabilized everything else that they wore. The breastplate of righteousness sat on it. The sword was attached to it. Everything rested on the belt of truth. There is a reason why he lists the belt of truth first. Everything hangs on the truth. Did you know that the Word of God is true? Listen, that's under attack. You can't trust the Bible. It's full of contradictions. Great, show me one. Because I will show you that from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, there's not a single error, mistake, or contradiction. Don't forget that it took approximately 1,530 years for the Bible to be written. Forty different people wrote it. They wrote it from three different continents. They wrote it in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It was written by peasants. It was written by kings. It was written in times of war. It was written in times of peace. It was written in times of famine. It was written in times of plenty. It was written by prophets. It was written by apostles. It was written by farmers. It was written by zealots. Take all of that, put it together, and you should have all kinds of mistakes, errors, and contradictions, and yet you don't have one. You've got a perfect, all-holy written word coming from God. And I love that you can study it from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22 and find that it conforms to reality perfectly. It answers all of our biggest questions. It tells us exactly where we came from. As we talked about before, it comes from an infinite God creating all finite things. He's outside of time, space, and matter. He's outside of physics. He has to be. Otherwise, your only other answer is that everything in the universe came about from absolutely nothing, and no objective scientist would believe that. Well, then maybe the universe is eternal. It just always has been. The second law of thermodynamics blows that out of the water. Everything is in a state of decay. Our sun would have died a heat death sometime in eternity past, and you and I wouldn't be here. So God is good, God is real, and we know that he is the one who brought us into existence. Okay, that's truth. And everything hangs on that. If God's word is not true and he's not true, pack it up right now and let's go home. But he is. So, okay, we put on the belt of truth. You all wearing your belt of truth? Good. Next thing is the breastplate of righteousness, which hangs on the belt of truth. This refers to a big leather body armor. It was worn to protect all the vital organs. So it protected the liver, it protected the pancreas, it protected the heart, it protected the kidneys. Protected all of those things when arrows were being flung at them or a sword was being swung. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul said, For our sake, 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't belong to us on our own. We don't earn it. It's been given to us. We're also commanded to practice a righteous life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What does the word holy mean? Literally means to be set apart for a special purpose. The first time we see the word holy used in the Old Testament is when utensils were being set aside in the temple to be used for a special purpose in service to God. Now you and I are being looked at as those holy utensils set aside for a special purpose to be used by God. New Covenant, be usable in the hands of God. Remain that clean vessel that can be used in the hands of God. Remember, a holy and righteous life doesn't mean a lack of joy. It's the opposite. There's tons of it. We just don't have have to have regrets when we have that joy. I'll give you an example. The Adkins invited us over for dinner, and so the DeShops, Adkins, and Coe's all got together. Y'all met Brian this morning. He was up here doing announcements. And we sat around a table and ate really good food and had a blast playing word association games. Oh my goodness, we didn't need alcohol to be total dorks together, but man, it was a blast. We were laughing so much by the end that it was probably bad that we ate too much food. We had an absolute blast together and all kinds of joy together and didn't have to have any regrets in the process. Again, I want to remind you, do you know that you're allowed to have joy in church? Do you know that you're allowed to smile this morning? Do you know that you're allowed to go out there and get all kinds of caffeinated and have a blast doing it together? Those are things that the Lord has blessed us with. We're allowed to have fun, and we're allowed to have joy, and we can do all that while remaining righteous. We don't need drugs, alcohol, illicit sex, crude joking in order to have a good time together. You and I can have a blast on Sunday and wake up Monday and have no regrets whatsoever. In fact, I'm planning on it. I'm planning on having great joy in the Lord. Does that mean that every day is going to be rainbows and unicorns? Well, hopefully not, but not at all. There are going to be days that are going to be tough, and we're going to struggle through those together, but we can have joy in the midst. Well, here's the third thing Paul says put on. Put on the shoes of the gospel. Put on the shoes of the gospel. Roman soldiers actually wore sandals that had spikes driven in them so that when people were coming up against them, they could dig them into the ground and not be pushed back or not lose ground. They wanted to keep the higher ground. Paul says, put on those shoes of the gospel. Know the fundamentals of the faith so that you won't be pushed back. Listen, if your feet are fitted with the readiness of the gospel, you can step out into the world and not lose ground. Hey, our kids don't need to lose ground. Statistics are scary and they're staggering right now. But about 75% of our students will leave a youth group, and if they go to a secular university within the first year, will claim to have abandoned the faith. About three out of every four. If you all know who Josh McDowell is, his son, Sean McDowell, uh, does a great job of working with this up-and-coming generation. 
He and a guy named Mark Matlock and a few others have been going all over campuses together and doing these surveys to find out where kids are at. And more and more, they're walking away from the truth of the gospel. And I believe one of the big reasons they're walking away from the truth of the gospel is they haven't answered three questions. What do they believe? Why do they believe it? And how do they live it? Not only should our kids know what they believe and know it well, we should know what we believe and know it well, but know why you believe it. Do you know why you're a believer in Jesus? Listen, I understand that sometimes we'll just say, I just take it by faith. God's Word says it, so that settles it. That doesn't work. Because when people come at us and they have seemingly well-sounding arguments, we end up with students walking away from the faith in the process. Let them know why they believe what they believe, and then let's teach them how to live that out. Y'all are probably fairly, fairly familiar with 1 Peter 3.15. You'll know it when you hear it. But Peter tells the believers that are being scattered because of their faith, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The word defense in the Greek, if you literally translate it, it's, it means a reasoned argument. Do you have a reasoned argument or a case for why you believe what you believe? Can you tell somebody what you believe about Christ? Can you tell them why you believe it? And can you tell them how you're living it, why it's made a difference in your life? Well, Paul moves on in verse 16 to say, take up the shield of faith. He's not talking about this little round thing. He's talking about a four foot by two foot rectangular shield that is soaked in water so that when the devil flings his firing arrows or, or flings his firing arrows, it hits the shield and then it gets extinguished. Remember, this all goes back to truth. Is your faith grounded in truth? Did you know that everybody has faith in something? We all do. We all put our faith in things day in and day out. The question is not about the amount of faith or sincerity of faith. The question is, what is your object of faith? Is your object of faith rock solid? You could put a ton of faith into a false god. And do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? Well, if you've listened to the wrong person who gave you the wrong directions, you're going to end up in the wrong in the wrong destination. But if I'm listening to the right person giving me the right directions, I'm going to end up in the right destination. If I'm going to go to a foreign city, I want to talk to somebody that's been there before. It's crazy to me that people that have these NDEs, near-death experiences, are suddenly telling you what they think heaven and hell are all about. Yet the apostle John, who we're going to read about, that wrote the book of Revelation, he wasn't even allowed to tell certain things when he was exposed to heaven. So I don't want somebody that's had a near-death experience telling me what heaven and hell are like. I want somebody that's actually died and come back again. That's Jesus. Let me give you another NDE. Maybe you've never been to Denver. But I've had a near-Denver experience, so I'm going to tell you all about Denver. and where I'm going to get you lost because I've never actually been there. Jesus has actually been there and back again. He will tell you exactly what's going to happen to you when you die. Well, here's the fifth thing. Put on the helmet of salvation. The helmet was used to protect the most vital of all the organs, and that is your brain. 
Paul says, put on that helmet of salvation because if you don't have that, you got nothing. If we're going to be effective in this battle and we're going to be effective for the glory of God, we first and foremost have to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else we do matters unless Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. And then here's the sixth thing, take up the sword of the Spirit. Now, it's interesting when he's talking about the sword, he's not talking about the big sword. He's actually talking about this tiny little sword that Romans would use in hand-to-hand combat when they were going at it with the enemy. Scripture talks about the Word of God, and it uses two different words for the word, word. Did you catch all that? In the Greek, the word logos means the totality of God's Word, Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22. But here he doesn't use the word logos. When he talks about the sword of the Spirit and he talks about the Word, he uses the word rhema. Rhema actually means a particular piece of the Word. Let me try to give you an example. Jesus fasts 40 days and 40 nights, and then the enemy attacks him. He tries to get him to turn stones into bread. He tries to get him to jump off a high cliff. He tries to get him to worship him instead of God Almighty. And all the while, Jesus takes out the rhema. He takes out a piece of God's word for that particular battle. Do you all know which book Jesus quoted from three different times? Deuteronomy. How many of you all did your devotions through Deuteronomy this week? Probably not. So Jesus goes back and three different times he quotes Deuteronomy. He selects just the perfect weapon to defeat the enemy. Here's the lesson to be learned from that. Do you know the Word of God so well that when the attack comes, you know exactly what Scripture to go to? Now, you're not always going to know the answer, but let me just give you a few examples. When you're feeling depressed and down in life, where could you go? Well, Psalms would be one great place to go. If you need wisdom on how to handle life, Proverbs would be a great place to go. If you're feeling beaten down and you're wondering where the Lord is in the midst of all the attacks, where could you go? First Peter would be a great book to go to. If you want to know who Jesus is and whether or not he really is who he said he is, you could go to the book of John. If you want encouragement for who wins the war, go read the book of Revelation. That's just an example of what we mean by the word rhema. And then lastly, he says, you need the briefing room of the Spirit. Or in other words, you need to be praying all the time. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 tells us that we have direct access to God's throne room. We don't have to have anybody else go to God on our behalf. This is where some religions have missed it, but you don't need a priest in fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says that you are a part of the priesthood of believers. In other words, you can go to God on your own. You get to go directly to his throne room. Gang, as believers, we are engaged in war. I want to close with a little illustration that I think is appropriate. It's a, another illustration, this time from the Korean War. Enemy forces were advancing on a group called the Baker Company. And the Baker Company got cut off from the rest of the unit. This little band of about 20 men are surrounded. And Baker Company is getting a remote signal from the corpsman. The corpsman says, Baker Company, what's your situation? 
nothing for quite some time, finally the baker company is able to chime in and responds to the corpsman. Corman says, how are you guys doing? What is your situation? Baker company comes back and says, the enemy is to the east of us. The enemy is to the north of us. The enemy is to the west of us. And the enemy is to the south of us. And then they pause for a moment. And the baker company says, hey, Corman, the enemy's not going to get away from us now. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. They're not fighting for victory. They're fighting from it. They trust that the battle is going to be won. Hey, gang, the enemy is to the north, south, east, and west. There's nowhere to go. If you all think, I just need to move out of Albuquerque and get out of the big city and go to somewhere remote so I can get away from the enemy, he's there. If you think, if I just escape, maybe if I just move to the North Pole where there's nobody, I'll get away from all this evil and sin. There's a problem with that. Evil and sin has tainted and corrupted every piece of the universe. And that's not going to change until Jesus returns again. And again, we're going to read about it in Revelation 20, Revelation 21, and Revelation 22, but eventually we're going to get the new Jerusalem, that holy heavenly city coming down out of heaven. We're going to get the new heavens and the new earth. But until then, the earth is corrupt. It is a mess, and God has left us here to speak into the corruption. Speak the gospel into the corruption. Bring Jesus into the corruption because he's the only one that's going to change hearts. He's the only one that's going to change minds. He's the only one that's going to change eternities. Amen? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you and we just praise you for who you are, Lord. We are thankful for the fact that you are the one who can change hearts. You can change minds. And we are thankful for the fact that we don't fight for victory. But Lord, we're getting to fight from it. Lord, we come before you and we praise you for showing us and exposing who the enemy really is. Lord, we're thankful that you are the energy that we draw from, that it's not about ourselves, that it doesn't come from within us, but Lord, it comes solely and completely from you. And Lord, we are thankful that you have given us equipment for this battle. And Lord, it's not equipment that we earn, it's equipment that you put on us, that at the moment of salvation, Lord, you, you put the belt of truth on us, you gave us the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, those shoes that are fitted with the readiness of the gospel. You gave us the sword of the Spirit. And Lord, you gave us that briefing room that we can come to. So Lord, we thank you for all that you have blessed us with that we don't deserve. We take time now to tell you that we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. Have a great week.